It's better to read more than less, right? (laughs) Well, good evening, everyone. It's so good to be here tonight and to uh, be able to share together in the Word of God. And it's an unusual circumstance for me tonight because usually when I'm coming to preach, the last time I preached was quite some time ago, and nobody could possibly remember what we discussed back then. But in this case, it's only been a couple of weeks, so I probably don't need to repeat anything from last time because you all remember exactly what we talked about, right? Yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> last time we began our three-part series entitled Holy Living from 1 Peter 1.13 through to 2.12. And the three parts are holy components or elements. This is what we talked about last time. Tonight we're going to be talking about holy conduct, and the next time... Lord willing, we'll be talking about holy construction. And when I spoke last, we covered 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21, holy components. And we broke this passage down into three components or elements of holy living. The standard for holy living, the sacrifice for holy living, and the source of holy living. When we talked about the standard for holy living from 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, We said, if our conduct is going to be holy, first we have to prepare our minds for action. Be sober-minded and set our hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then we need to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And here we pointed out a clear connection between what we focus our minds on and our resulting actions or behavior. But even more importantly, if our conduct is going to be holy, we have to recognize the standard for holy living. Who is that standard? It's he who called us, God. God is our standard for holy living. And as God is holy, we are to be holy in all of our conduct. Now, holy simply means to be set apart. For the believer, this means to be set apart by or for God. The idea is for the believer to have a likeness of nature with God, because God is our standard for holiness. Next, we talked about the sacrifice or payment for holy living from verses 17 to 19. The ransom or payment for our sin was the precious blood of Christ. This is the sacrifice for holy living. Without this payment to free us from the mastery of sin over us, There is no opportunity for holy living for us. By the payment made by Christ with his own blood, we are positional. Listen carefully now. We are positionally made holy before God. And from a practical standpoint, put on a path of progressive holiness, neither of which would be possible without that payment of Christ's blood to redeem us from sin. And then the final component we looked at last time, from verses 20 to 21, was the source or basis or foundation for holy living. Even before creation, before man or anything that we know existed, God already knew that he would send Christ to die for us and to be raised from the dead. God never had a plan B. From eternity past, before man existed, before sin existed, God planned to send his son to pay the price for sin. He did this to bring glory to Christ so that our faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope in God are the source 
of our holy living. Its foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his subsequent glory. Apart from this, we are separated from Christ. We have no hope, and we are without God in this world, as we saw from Ephesians 2.12. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from him and what he has done for us, there is no holy living. Well, this brings us to part two in our series of holy living. Tonight, we're going to be talking about holy conduct. So please follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 Peter 1.22 through the 2.3 again, just to get it into our minds. Peter said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation." If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now I've broken down tonight's text into two parts. Holy conduct secured in the word. And holy conduct sustained by the word. So that's holy conduct secured in the word. And holy conduct sustained by the word. And of course when we say the word we're talking about the word of God. Now, before we look at what Peter has to say, I, have one, I would like to make one important comment. Near the end of Christ's earthly ministry, he was preparing his disciples for his departure. And in 1 John 16, or sorry, in John 16, 7, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go I will send him to you. And then a little further along in chapter 16 of John, verses 12 to 15, he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now when Jesus had finished his work on earth and returned to heaven, he did not leave us alone. He sent us the helper, the spirit of truth. Paul writing to Titus shares a similar truth. He says in Titus 3, 4-7, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, regeneration from Titus 3.5 is talking about a new birth or, or recreation. 
Renewal is talking about a renovation or a complete change for the better, effected by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word for renewal is only used in one other place in the New Testament, the very familiar Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by it you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, why am I saying all of this? Today we're going to be talking about holy conduct. Peter is going to make the connection between holy conduct and preparing our minds for action by the word of God. Peter does not address the Holy Spirit in regard to our holy conduct, but we must understand that apart from the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, there would be no salvation and therefore no holy conduct on our part. Without the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, we would be at a loss for how to live a holy life. However, renewing of our mind is another important requirement if there's going to be holy conduct. The renewing of our mind by which we are transformed comes by the word of God. This is the aspect of holy living that Peter will be focusing on. So first, tonight, we're going to see holy conduct secured in the word. I'm going to read verses 22 to 25 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So the first point that Peter makes in regards to our holy conduct is a sincere brotherly love. When we are obedient to love the brethren in this way, Peter says it purifies the soul. And notice in verse 22 that he puts this into the past tense, having purified your souls. This was something that Peter's readers were doing. Now, Peter uses the word love twice in verse 22. The first time he uses the word love, it's Philadelphia. We're all familiar with Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, that's exactly what Philadelphia means. It's, it's also translated in 2 Peter 1.7 as brotherly affection or brotherly kindness. This is a, a love with which Christians cherish one another. This is a sincere love. That is, without hypocrisy. Now, the second time that he used love in verse 22 is the Greek word agapio. The essence of this love is goodwill, benevolence, a willful delight in the object of his love. This love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. This is a love that is selfless, unconditional, and is manifested by our actions toward one another. Now, this is not only a feeling that wells up inside of us. It's a choice that we make to love one another, to have a preference for one another. This love is demonstrated by what we do, not by what we say. And notice in verse 22 that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly could also be translated strenuously or fervently. The idea is to never let up. It's a complete love. Pure heart is talking about character of our love, 
for the brethren. It's to be clean, unstained, and free from the influence of sin. So to put it all together then, Peter is exhorting us to cherish and to have a preference for one another. We're to love the brethren as an act of the will. That is, we make a clear choice to love. The strenuous and fervent love is to be selfless and unconditional. It is to be substantiated by what, not by what we say, but by our actions toward one another. And clearly, love for the brothers and sisters is something that Peter places great importance in. Now, sincere love of the brethren is the first point that Peter brings up in the context of holy conduct. Why? What does love have for the brethren? Why is it so important? Well, Peter gives us the reasons in the next verse, verse 23. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The first reason that Peter gives to have a sincere love for the brethren is since you have been born again. Now, earlier we said that when we're born again, we experience a new birth or a recreation and a complete change for the better, affected by the Holy Spirit. One of the outcomes of this recreation and change for the better is a love for the brethren. In fact, we could say that love for the brethren is evidence of our salvation. Listen to what John said in 1 John 3.14. says that we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that we've passed out of death into life? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... Cannot love, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So it is clear that if we claim to be born again, but do not love the brethren in Christ, we're lying to ourselves and we're lying to others. Our holy conduct ought to be characterized by our love for one another in Christ. Now, John Piper makes a very helpful comment about how we should love one another. He says... God takes, it very seri- takes very seriously the truth that all his children are brothers and sisters. They all have one father, one homeland. And God says, there is a way that my children should feel about each other, not just act toward each other, but feel about each other. They are to be tenderly affectionate toward each other. Why? Because this testifies to the reality that the, of the family of God. To feel hard toward each other, to feel indifferent or narrow, not to mention bitter or resentful toward each other, contradicts who God is and who we are. God is our Father, and we are his children, and we are brothers and sisters in one family with the deepest common values in the universe. Secondly, Peter says that we should love one another, back in verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, perishable is talking about something that disintegrates or corrupts, much like our physical bodies over our lifetimes. Romans 1.23 translates the word perishable as mortal, as in mortal man, because man will gradually grow old and the body will break down and die. So the reference to perishable seed is referring to our physical birth, 
Now, the seed by which we've been born again is imperishable. That is indestructible, incorruptible, and hence immortal. The seed by which we've been born again will never break down and die. It is indestructible. Now, where do we find this imperishable seed? Well, verse 23 continues with, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, there's some debate in the Greek about here whether living and abiding refers to God or to the word of God. But based on verses 24 and 25 that we'll get to in a moment, the context would indicate that Peter's talking about the word of God here when he's talking about living and abiding. So listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, where do we find the knowledge of him? In the word of God. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Where do we find God's precious and very great promises? In the word of God. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Clearly, Peter understands the important role played by the word of God in our salvation. He says that through the promises of God, we become partakers of the divine nature. Hebrews 4.12, very, very familiar verse around here. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word living in Hebrews 4.12 is the same word used in 1 Peter 1.23. It simply means to live. But the idea here is having a vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. This is describing the word of God. The word of God is vital in leading us to salvation. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then Paul in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the vital role of the living word of God plays in our salvation. Now notice in verse 23 that Peter says the word is not only living, it also is also abiding. That is, it will endure. It will, per- it will not perish, but it will last. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this brings us right into verses 24 and 25, where Paul, or sorry, where Peter will make a sharp contrast to emphasize the endurance of the word of God. He says, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Now, I really don't have much of a green thumb. But in the spring, I like to plant a garden full of petunias. 
And I like the petunias because they grow to fill the entire garden with beautiful blooms and flowers, and they're very low maintenance. Basically, if you water them, they'll flourish throughout the entire summer. But when fall comes, they die off. The beautiful blooms shrivel up and die, and I have to collect them up and put them out with my yard waste. This is exactly what Peter is talking about when he quotes Isaiah 40, 6-8. He's using the image of the flower of the grass as an example of something that lasts for only a very short period of time, and then it perishes. When in verse 24 he quoted Isaiah 40, 68, he left out one phrase at the end of the verse that says, Surely the people are like grass. And just like my petunias shrivel up and die, our physical bodies will one day do the same. In light of eternity, our lives are like the flower of the grass. Verse 25 says, But the word of the Lord endures forever. The use of the word but generally begins a contrasting thought, and clearly the contrast between the flower of the grass when compared to the word of God is what we're looking at here. The flower of the grass will only last a very short time, but the word of the God will abide forever. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And then verse 25 ends with, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news, the gospel, the power of God for salvation. Now remember the point that we're making here is holy conduct is secured by the word or in the word. The beginning of holy living starts when we are born again as evidenced by our love for the brethren. Not forgetting what we said earlier about the definite role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, Peter says we are born again through the living and abiding word of God, the good news that was preached to us. Without salvation in Christ, there is no holy living. Given the vital role of the word of God in our salvation, we can say our holy conduct is secured in the word. Though we in our physical form will wither and die like the flower of the grass, the word of God will endure forever. Now, at the point of salvation, when we're born again, we're just beginning our spiritual journey in Christ. This is just the start of our holy living. We're like a newborn baby. If a baby is not fed, it will wither and die. A baby requires sustenance, If it's going to mature, what is our sustenance as spiritual babies? If we're going to grow and mature in Christ? Well, this brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where we'll see that holy conduct is sustained by the word. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In our first point, I want you to listen to this very carefully. In our first point, Peter began with brotherly love and moved to a discussion of the endurance of the word of God and its vital role um, 
in bringing us to salvation. Now, please note, now as we move to our second point, Peter's going to begin with a discussion of things in our lives that detract from brotherly love and move to a discussion of the nourishment of the word of God and its vital role in bringing us to spiritual maturity. Paul, speaking from the perspective of a believer in Christ, laments in Romans 7, 18 and 19. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You know, though we are clearly commanded in Scripture to love the brethren, the reality is that we do not always love the brethren as we ought. In our sinfulness, we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is why Peter, in verse 1, is exhorting his readers to put these things away. Have you ever noticed that often we treat those who are closest to us worse than those who are not? For example, we might get angry at our spouse or a sibling, but under the same circumstance, we would never lose our temper with a coworker or a classmate. We're able to easily control our emotions with those in our outer circle, so to speak, but, those, but with those who are closest to us in our inner circle, it's a completely different story. This boils down to an act of the will. This is a clear choice that we're making. Now, the same is true within the family of God. We find it most difficult to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ well compared to those who are not so close to us. We are quick to take offense and slow to forgive. We're hypersensitive around those who are close and thick-skinned around those who are not. Why else would Paul find it necessary to exhort believers to be unified? Listen to what he says about this. And I'm just going to read a number of verses rapid fire here because it really makes the point. This is all from Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you, you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Colossians 3.13 and 14, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 12, 16 to 19, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
In Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord, uh, being in full accord and of one mind. And I don't know if you are keeping track there, but in, in those verses, Paul was speaking to five different churches. So to five different churches, he found it necessary to talk to them about the way that they treat one another. Well, Peter weighs in as well later in the book in 1 Peter 1, 3, or 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, where he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, why would Peter find it necessary to say this if the believers were not repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling? Peter's talking to us as well, isn't he? So back in 1 Peter 2.1, he exhorts the believers to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, we could take time to look at every one of these negative qualities tonight, but we're not going to. We know exactly what Peter's trying to tell us here. It couldn't be clearer, could it? Earlier we said that, that love was an act of the will, a clear choice that we make. That clear choice means as an act of the will, putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander in all of our relationships with others, but most specifically with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As believers, we have a lot of growing up to do, don't we? How is this growth going to take place? What is it going to take for us to mature as believers beyond these negative qualities in our relationships with one another? Well, Peter answers these questions as we move on to verses 2 and 3. He says, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When my daughter, our firstborn, arrived, my wife and I were brand new parents, and we had absolutely no idea what we were getting into. But we soon found out. Our daughter was born with a proverbial hollow leg, And so she was up every hour and a half, day and night, demanding to be nursed. It was absolutely exhausting. We were completely at our wit's end. After a while, we had to take turns throughout the night. I took my turn feeding my daughter formula so that my wife could get some desperately needed sleep so that she could survive during the day while I was at work. Peter says, in the same way that my infant daughter longed for her mother's milk, is exactly the way that we should be longing for the pure spiritual milk. In the context of the passage we just studied from verses of chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, we can deduce that the pure spiritual milk is the living and abiding word of God that remains forever. Now, the word long here simply means to desire greatly. Just like my daughter as a newborn longed for, desired greatly her mother's milk, we are to desire greatly the word of God. And we see a picture of this longing as it's painted for us in Psalm 
where it says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And we can just picture in our mind's eye this deer with its tongue hanging out, desperate for a drink of water from the cool flowing stream. Why should we desire greatly the word of God? Well, Peter continues in verse 2. He says that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's by their mother's milk that a newborn grows and thrives. In the same way, it's by the steady diet of the word of God that the Christian grows and thrives in Christ. And in the same way that God never intended for a newborn to remain a child, he never intended for one who was born again to remain a spiritual infant. Now, babes, they don't have to be taught to long for their mother's milk. Have you ever noticed that, you who are parents? They just do it. Those who have been born again should not have to be taught to long for the word of God. They should just do it. When I was a brand-new Christian, a friend gave me a copy of the New Testament called Good News for Modern Man. And it was a translation that was written in very easy-to-understand language for someone who had never read the Bible before. I absolutely devoured it. I couldn't get enough of it. I was so hungry for the word of God. Now, as my daughter started to grow up and was slowly weaned off her mother's milk, she had to learn how to eat other foods. This was not always a smooth process. As with many children, our kids go through stages where they don't like everything that they're given to eat. They have to learn to to like various foods that are good for them so that they'll grow up to be strong and healthy. Similarly, as we grow up in our salvation, we have to learn how to dig deeper into the word of God so that we, can, we will be spiritually nourished, so that we continue to grow and flourish in our walk with Christ. This requires work and discipline. Unfortunately, many Christians are malnourished because they've lost that longing for the word of God that they had when they were a spiritual newborn. Once again, Peter says in verses 2 and 3, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, if you are truly born again, long for the word of God. Now here Peter uses spiritual milk to describe the great and much-needed spiritual nourishment we need from the word of God to sustain us throughout our entire lives in Christ. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews uses milk in a different way than Peter does. In Hebrews 5.12, he contrasts milk with solid food. He's, searching for, he's teaching the same truth as Peter, that believers need to be constantly feeding on the word of God, but he's doing so by contrasting milk which he relates to food for infants, and solid foods, which he relates to food for adults. Now, the principle from Hebrews 5 is very, very instructive for us as we're looking at this passage in 1 Peter. So he says in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, 
since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see the discipline and hard work here? He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The Greek word for constant practice is only used here in Hebrews 5.14. It simply means habit. It's a regular practice or use. In other words, if we're going to be growing into spiritual maturity, it requires the constant or habitual practice of being in the word of God. Now, we said that holy living begins at salvation where the word of God plays a vital role. It's sustained by the word of God as we feed our minds and our hearts with it. Now, we began our discussion of holy living back in verse 13 last time, where we were exhorted to prepare our minds for action. When we studied the, or sorry, prepare our minds for action so that in verse 15, that we would be holy in all our conduct. Now, when we studied these verses, we made the connection between what we fill our minds with and our resulting behavior or action. Now, I'd like to close this evening uh, using Psalm 1 and 2, which beautifully illustrates this principle for us. Listen to these Psalm 1, 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is talking about a blessed or happy man and how he conducts himself. He doesn't walk in the same direction of the wicked, nor does he enter the way of sinners, and he does not fellowship with scoffers. In other words, he does not enter into the ways and thinking of this world, of those who reject God. Well, what is his focus then? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His mind is prepared for action. He delights or takes great pleasure in the word of God. He exercises great discipline and hard work by meditating or engaging in thought or contemplation on the word of God day and night. To put it simply, He's putting in the time and effort to study God's word. Now, this study directly impacts his conduct or behavior, as we saw back in verse 1. Today, we saw that holy conduct is secured in the word, and holy conduct is sustained by the word. Are you longing for the word of God like a newborn's long for their mother's milk? Are you willing to put in the time and effort to study God's word that by it you may grow up into salvation? Don't remain a spiritual babe. Make it a habitual practice to be in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, sometimes as we look into your word, and we talk about lofty topics like holiness. As you command us to be holy 
as you are holy. Father, it's overwhelming. Lord, it's beyond our comprehension of how we can possibly be holy in the way that you are holy. And we recognize, Lord, that in this life that'll never be because of the sinfulness of our lives. But, Father, you would never give us a command that we can't obey. And, Lord, you've given us steps that we can take. And, Lord, tonight, as Peter has made clear to us, part of that process of becoming holy is being in the Word of God. And, Lord, let letting your Word have a tremendous impact on our behavior, our actions. And Father, I pray that you would give us a longing for your Word. I pray, Lord, that you give us a longing for the Word of God in the same way that an infant longs for their mother's milk. Lord, that great longing that doesn't have to be taught, but just is. I pray that you place that in our hearts. Lord, that we'd have that heart and desire day and night to be meditating or contemplating the truth of the Word of God, to be taking the time and effort to sit down and study your Word, to seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. We ask, Lord, that you give us that longing. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.